March 10, 1873, Southeastern Kansas. In 1873, there are many ways to die on the road between Independence, Kansas and Fort Scott, Kansas. The Osage Trail is a dangerous one. Never mind natural disasters, unforgiving terrain, tornadoes, blizzards, rattlesnakes. This area has a well-earned reputation for harboring outlaws and raiders from nearby Indian Territory. Lately, settlers are especially jumpy. For the past couple of years, a surprising number of people have disappeared while traveling the Osage Trail. Even seasoned settlers used to the dangers of the Old West are becoming uneasy. Remains of murdered men have turned up on the prairie. There is talk of forming a vigilance committee. Matters come to a head when Dr. William York, the brother of a prominent Kansas State Senator, goes missing on March 10, 1873, on his way home from Fort Scott. The Fort Scott Daily Monitor. The trace of him is lost at Big Hill or Drum Creek, where it is more than probable he was foully murdered to get possession of his horse and other property which he might have had about him. The locality where he disappeared is a notorious one, this not being the first event of a similar kind that has transpired in the neighborhood. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, this is part two of case 25 entitled The Devil's Kitchen. If you haven't listened to part one, you should go do that so you'll know what's going on. But if you don't want to, or it's been a while since you listened to part one, here's a brief recap. 
Eight bodies have been found buried at the Bender Farm slash rest stop slash grocery located on the treacherous Osage Trail in southeastern Kansas. The Bender family fathered John, Mother Mary, and grown children John Jr. and Katie, who are suspected of the murders, have all fled. An extensive search is underway for the fugitives. Okay, let's talk about murder. The stories of the murders at the Bender Farm is huge news. Sensational articles appear in newspapers all over the country. Some are sensationalized and not very accurate. Many newspapers report Marianne's age as seven or eight years old when she's just 18 months old. There are rumors that more bodies are likely to be found. However, after the initial eight bodies are found in the garden, as far as I can tell, no other digging is done on the property. Still, there is speculation that as many as 21 people were murdered by the Bender family. Hordes of curiosity seekers flood the area as soon as the news gets out. From the Kansas City Times. There were about 1,000 men, women, and children at the Bender Farm, gazing with mingled emotions of horror and curiosity. The graves, even yet, sent forth a sickening stench, and women held their noses as they peered down into the narrow, tenantless holes. Two special trains were ran, one from Independence and one from Coffeyville, to a point on the railway line about two miles from the home, and teams were busy running to and from the cars to the grounds, while the greater portion of the crowd was compelled to walk. These trains brought about 600 persons. There were about six or 700 persons there from all parts of the surrounding country in wagons, carriages, buggies, and on horseback. The curiosity of many seemed to master the repulsion and hundreds brought away some memento of the dreadful place. The blood-stained bedstead was smashed to pieces and divided by the crowd all the shrubbery and young trees were broken up and torn up and carried away and pieces of the house borne off by the curious. Such another raid would not leave much of the shanty. It was supposed that the grounds would be plowed and scraped again this day in a search for other bodies, but the intention was abandoned and it is not probable any further search will be made until it is done regularly by the county authorities. As I said in part one, as far as I can tell, there weren't any other searches of the property. The focus quickly becomes what happened to the evil benders, or as they're coming to be known, the bloody benders. And are others involved? It's widely thought, at least at the time, that others 
were in cahoots with the Benders. Newspapers routinely call the area notorious and a den of horse thieves and murderers. A number of close neighbors are rounded up and, let's say, vigorously interrogated. And when I say vigorously, that's a real understatement. There are accounts that one neighbor, Rudolf Brockman, who operated a little trading post near the Benders, is strung up by vigilantes in an attempt to get him to talk. It sounds like he either convinced them he didn't know anything or they thought they'd killed him and left him to regain consciousness later. The governor of Kansas immediately posts a reward of $2,000, about $40 in today's money, for information about the whereabouts of the four members of the Bender family. This is the description from the Wanted poster. John Bender, about 60, 5 foot 8 or 9, so average sized, German, speaks but little English, dark complexion, no whiskers, and sparely built. Mrs. Bender, about 50 years of age, rather heavy set, blue eyes, brown hair, German, speaks broken English. John Bender Jr., alias John Gebhardt, five foot eight or nine, slightly built, gray eyes with brownish tint, brown hair, light mustache, no whiskers, about 27 years of age. Speaks English with German accent. Kate Bender, about 24 years of age, dark hair and eyes, good-looking, well-formed, rather bold in appearance. Fluent talker, speaks good English with very little German accent. The movements of the Benders early on in the area are traced almost immediately after the large search party questions the Benders. They take off in their wagon and go up to Thayer, Kansas to catch a train. Thayer is a little north of the Bender farm. They could easily make that trip within a day. According to reliable reports, their wagon and horses are found near Thayer, abandoned and nearly starved. At the train station there, it's reliably reported that the Benders buy tickets to Humboldt, Kansas, some 30 miles, 50 kilometers north of there. Then at the intervening stop in Chanute, Kansas, the younger Benders get off the train, which Ma and Pa stay on, as far as Kansas City. It's also thought they went on to St. Louis. The younger Benders either get tickets south to Kansas or west, possibly to Colorado or New Mexico. Needless to say, with all the newspaper coverage and the big reward, there are many, many sightings of the Benders all over the country. Unfortunately, in the best case scenario, the Benders have at least a couple of weeks head start when they flee. They could be anywhere in that time. It's 1873. 
half the continental United States is still the Wild West, not to mention Canada and Mexico. They completely disappear. And what happened to the Bloody Benders is still a mystery to this day. For decades, there's been a large historical marker near the rest stop at the intersection of U.S. Highways 169 and 400. It says, quote, Although stories abound, the ultimate fate of the murderous Bender family is uncertain. Some say they escaped, others that they were executed by a vengeful posse. Their story is unresolved and remains one of the great unsolved mysteries of the Old West. Unquote. Listeners, oh, do stories ever abound? For decades, sightings will be reported. In 1890, so uh, 17 years after the murders, two women are arrested in Niles, Michigan, when they are mm, somewhat credibly accused of being Mrs. Bender and Kate Bender, they're brought back to Kansas. They claim to be Mrs. Almira Monroe and her stepdaughter or daughter in some accounts, Mrs. Sarah Eliza Davis. This generates many sensational stories. And I wonder if that's where the name Elvira that you see for old Mrs. Bender comes up. Um, one place I can think of off the top of my head is Wikipedia. You know, Elmira, Elvira, I don't know, maybe. Ultimately, a judge lets them go, convinced they are not the Benders. And I agree, there's good evidence that this woman, Mrs. Almira Monroe, and also known as Mrs. Marks, it, it, it's said that she's been married a whole bunch of times. Um, but anyway, this woman, the older woman, is reliably reported to be in prison in Michigan, serving a sentence for manslaughter at the time of the crimes. I mentioned the recent Wichita article about the case that caught my eye in the first place. It's entitled Kansas Site of 1870s Bloody Benders Serial Killings is on the auction block. This article is Amy Likers, the very property where the Bender farm was and where the murders took place and the bodies are found, is for sale. The auction's next week, February 10th, 2020. Next week to me as I'm recording this. Liker interviewed Don Richardson, a Cherry Vale Museum board member, this is right in the area of the Bender Farm, who relates that nobody actually knows for sure where the house and graves were at the Bender Farm. He says, if we could find that well, 
underground, we could pinpoint where the house was. Listeners, I'm a little surprised nobody's figured out where the actual crime scene is. Apparently, no one else ever lived on the spot, and it's been agricultural land for at least decades at this point. The location of the homestead is clearly given in the Labette County history, quote, northeast quarter of section 13, township 31, range 17, Osage Township, unquote. Now, I do a lot of genealogy, and I've tried to figure out where old homesteads, especially in Texas, are using descriptions like this. It's, it's often not that hard. It's fairly easy to get the, the geographical coordinates from the description. And so if you go there, sometimes you can get pretty close just asking yourself, where would I put my house, my barn, my garden? Then often you can see depressions and things. And if you dig around a little, sometimes you can turn up um, old, old pieces of pottery and stones and things like that that give you an idea where there might have been a house or a barn or something. Anyway, with this description of the Bender property, you're talking about 100, 160 acres altogether. There's a good map on the uh, museum website site that's at Le- Leather Hotel. Le- no, Leather Rocks, LeatherRockHotel.com, um, and it shows the site where they guess the house would be and it also shows the Osage Trail which looks like it cuts diagonally right through the middle of the Bender section. So you'd only be searching near where the trail was plus looking at photos of the scene at kansasmemory.com there are landmarks and I think there's a stone outbuilding off to the side of the frame house so it's likely the stable was a stone building um yeah you can you can see the picture I'm talking about at kansasmemory.com the Kansas historical site that has lots of pictures and things Anyway, I don't know. It's probably a lot easier to talk about than it actually is to do, but maybe someday somebody will figure out exactly where the site was of the murders. Besides the hammers that Leroy Dick took from the house, which we talked about in part one, the York family donated a knife that was allegedly taken from the Bender house. Tim Potter, the reporter on the 2013 article about the case, interviewed an anthropologist about the Benders. Quote, in theory, 
the hammers could be used today to see whether they are consistent with injuries to the skulls of the victims who were reburied, said Pierre Moore Jansen, a professor and chairman of the Department of Anthropology at Wichita State University. He has helped analyze modern-day crime scenes as well as historic and prehistoric materials. Hammers, especially old ones, could have distinctive characteristics that could be matched to injuries. As for the extensive crime scene at the farm, what came to be known as Hell's Acre or Hell's Half Acre, it's very likely that the 1873 excavation missed some of the graves dug by the killers, Moore Jansen said. If reports that most of the graves were dug seven feet deep is correct, that would increase the likelihood that remains would not be disturbed and that some bones could remain, he said. Tools that could, could be used now would indicate non-intrusive subsurface testing that can reveal disturbances in the soil that could suggest a grave. Also, test pits could be done. In the state's possession since 1923 is a knife reportedly found by a brother of the doctor who was killed. The brother's wife donated it. Listeners, that would be Ed York's wife, the youngest brother of William and Alexander York, whom we talked about in part one. The knife supposedly had been hidden in a mantel clock in the Bender house, said Nikayla Zimmerman, registrar with the Kansas Museum of History. Um, it seems odd, doesn't it, that you would hide a knife in a clock? Oh, well. Now, how true that is, she said, trailing off. The tapered blade, about four inches long, and with a bent tip, bears reddish-brown stains. Is it blood, she said? I have my doubts. Still, the knife is a rare surviving item, reportedly from the Bender House. The knife is not on exhibit, but can be seen upon request at the State Museum in Topeka. End of the article. The knife is small. Uh, four inches, that is pretty short. But I, as you know, if you've listened to other cases, do know something about cutting throats from my research only. There's not much resistance in the neck of humans and animals. A sharp knife that size could easily cut a human's major blood vessel in the neck, especially if the victim's unconscious. The benders are farm people. Let's remember they know how to slaughter animals. Listeners, I know there are doubts about the provenance of the hammers and the knife that were found, allegedly, at the bender farm, but I kind of think they're authentic, so 
maybe DNA. Wouldn't that be exciting? Anyway, as the professor said, it would be a very interesting project to pursue for its scientific, educational, and historical value. So, listeners, if any of you decide to buy the Bender Farm or possibly want to pursue degrees in anthropology at Wichita State University, please let us know. It would be really interesting to see what might develop from further study of this this land and the artifacts. I have to say, uh, buying the farm and getting a degree in anthropology, um, that did run through my mind a few times, but alas, probably not, at least not anytime soon. Okay, while speculation time. This case is haunting to think about. I can picture teenagers sitting around rural campfires in Labette County, Kansas, telling ghost stories about the bloody benders. On the surface, it, it doesn't seem like a whodunit or a howdunit or even really a whydunit. But I do have some reservations about the generally accepted accounts that the benders set up a a sort of way station on the trail to lure in unsuspecting travelers and rob them. Um, initially, many people were suspected of the murders. There was talk of a gang of murderers. I think the reason behind some of that speculation is that once people knew what had happened at the Bender's place, they wondered why the neighbors didn't suspect something off about the Bender's. All kinds of stories pop up about people who swore they narrowly escaped death at the Bender place. I don't believe any of these stories. They're pretty fantastic, and they beg the question, why didn't you mention any of this sooner? People in the area report, in solemn tones, you can tell by reading the news stories, I knew something was wrong. The way they kept to themselves, they weren't friendly. That Kate had a sinister look about her. Listeners, in my opinion, that's all stories made up in hindsight. One of the very reasons that people went west to remote, harsh places like Kansas in the 1870s is that they didn't want to be near other people because they don't play well with others. I bet the same thing could be said for many of the homesteaders in that area, and honestly, probably today, about the people of southeastern Kansas. Full disclosure, you could say that about me, and I promise I'm not murdering people. So, do I think 
any of the neighbors were involved or at the very least should have known what was going on? No, not really. They're hardworking farm people trying to scratch out a living in Kansas. For the most part, they're going to mind their own business. The only reason I think Silas Toll stopped to investigate the Bender place when he did is that he saw their livestock running loose and the calves starved to death. Now, as to where others are involved in the murders, I really don't think so. Not that I want people to be better murderers, but as I've said before, I think it's stupid to involve more than one person in murders because it makes it more likely somebody will talk. Plus, it means the money, if robbery is the motive, which I think it is, has to be shared by more people. And it's not like the benders are pulling in a fortune doing what they're doing. That said, I guess if a murderer feels the need to get more people involved, it's probably best that their family. And these are likely to be some pretty tough people who are the Benders victims, many of them Union Army veterans. So, I don't know, it might be a good idea to have a group of people involved. Um, speaking of family, there are theories that the Bender family isn't even a family. They're just a gang of Confederates pretending to be a family. Um, who knows? Stories say that young John and Kate are stepbrother and sister, or they're married, or both couples are living in sin. They're having orgies and devil-worshipping. I mean, you name it. It was a rumor about these people. But I don't see any real reason to think they're not just who they say they are. Except I do kind of doubt that their real names are Bender. As far as I can tell, there's not much known about exactly where they were before they arrive in Kansas. Possibly from Illinois or Indiana, but many people pouring into the area are from Illinois or Indiana. Even if they are really John or Johan and Mary or Elvira or whatever Bender, and John and Kate are the real names of the children, those are very common German names, and it would be very difficult to trace them back from where they came from. My speculation is that this bunch, they're covering their tracks from the time they arrive in America from Germany. Possibly they fled from Germany because 
they were suspected of murders. Who knows? They may even have operated similar murder and robbery schemes in some of the other places they've lived. In the 1870s, in most of America, there are plenty of isolated areas just like Labette County, Kansas, and plenty of people on the move who could be murdered, disposed of, and nobody would ever know. I don't question the murder method, bludgeoning and throat cutting. That seems like it would be pretty clear from the bodies, which are not that much decomposed. They're suspected to be less than a year old, all the bodies. So by all reports, um, they're fairly fresh corpses, not, not just skeletons. I, I do wonder about the famous canvas partition, though. It's mostly described as canvas, possibly from a covered wagon, that's tacked up to a frame to divide the front from the back. So not the kind of curtain that you would just pull back and forth all the time or take down and wash ever. The accepted theory of the crime that the benders would have the victims sit with their backs to the partition while the men hid in the back, waiting to bash the victim in the head with hammers. To me, that's just too complicated and too messy. There would be gobs of blood all over the canvas and and the whole room if they're bashing their heads in like that. And even, as some accounts say, cutting their throats. So, to me... It would be much simpler to kill the victim outside the house, maybe in the stable or at the well. Of course, you know, I would use a gun too, but probably to the benders, bullets are an unnecessary overhead for the family business, which is murder. I don't think the noise of a gunshot would be a problem, except maybe in the daytime, I I don't really know how well-traveled this road is. But as I've said before, even today in the Kansas countryside, gunshots aren't that remarkable. I would think that whoever looked at the bodies would know if the men were shot instead of bludgeoned, but possibly not. Um, there are a bunch of bullet holes reportedly in the house, which is, I think, kind of suspicious. But as far as I know, nobody ever noticed that when they were visiting the house or the little store they operated. But anyway, I just have trouble believing all the murders happened right in front of the canvas partition. I have a feeling some of the victims were sleeping out in their wagons or on bedrolls in the stables. Maybe even uh, for a fee, visitors could sleep on a cot in the back. At least 
that's the story the benders told them. Um, and so they could have been there when they were asleep. I, I think I think in many of the scenarios, at least, the victims were sleeping when they were snuck up on and bashed in the head. Then their bodies are taken to the spooky cellar and their throats are cut there. That explains a lot of the blood. Um, how about the motive? I, I think it's more than money. Most of their victims had very little with them worth stealing. The Benders have been called the first American family of serial killers. I believe there's some truth to that. Let's face it, the Benders are nobodies in the grand scheme of life. Killing people makes them somebodies in their own minds. They hold the power of life and death over their victims. I think they got a rush from that. We can speculate that some of the members of the family are more guilty than others. The newspapers blame the women the most, which I thought was surprising. Was surprising. Usually in those days, people have trouble believing women could commit violent crimes. Some of the stories portray Mother Bender as a sort of evil witch who controls everybody in the family. Most of the newspaper stories portray the controlling witch as the daughter Kate, that she's the one with the evil hold over the men. Personally, I think they're all involved fairly equally. They're a family of people with no consciences. None of them has any problem with murdering people. And in truth, they get off on murder. Today, we would call them, I don't know, I, I think sociopath and psychopath are a little out of fashion now, but um, you get the idea. As for what really happened to them after they fled, how were they never caught? I don't think it's because they were caught by vigilantes, hanged, and then hidden, as some stories say. Although, if something like that is going to happen, this might be the place. Let's speculate a little. Uh, Senator York and his brother suspect the Benders immediately. They gather up some of their Union Army buddies and force confessions out of the family, execute them, and hide the bodies. Then they... Uh, what? I don't know. Leave the, the victims' bodies until someone discovers the benders are missing? No. I, no. No. Someone's not going to leave their brother and other victims there. Um, uh, that doesn't make much sense to me. What about a vigilante execution of some kind after the crimes are discovered. That's more likely uh, possible, sure. Uh, speculation. Somehow the benders are traced to 
someplace. They had a long head start, at least two weeks, to get as far as can away from Kansas as possible. Um, I'd be in Canada, but maybe it's not that simple, and they have to hole up somewhere. They're not far from Indian Territory. That's one of the big rumors that they were tracked down to Indian Territory in Oklahoma and killed. But I don't think any of this is likely. If the Bloody Benders were caught, I don't think the vigilantes would have any problem telling people all about it. And if they did, nobody would make much of it. There's a reason Kansas is known in the 1800s as a lynching state. In fact, I think the vigilantes would be heroes. I believe the Benders split up. Maybe as couples, as that one news account states, maybe all four split up and went in all directions. Who knows? I think that happened as soon after they fled as they possibly could. That way, they're much less likely to be recognized than if they're traveling as a family of four. It's possible they met up again somewhere else. Uh, you know, who knows? They may even have started up the family business again, robbery and murder, somewhere else. It's a well-publicized case, but it's also a huge, largely uninhabited continent where they can go. I've done a lot of genealogy trying to trace my ancestors, and they're all from places like um, mostly the South, but definitely the frontier, and it's very hard to trace them, especially in the frontier areas. Records either weren't kept at all, or they were lost or destroyed. It was common for people to just leave town, pull up stakes, and go somewhere else, and never be heard from again. On the other side, it was common for people to show up somewhere, out of nowhere, with probably a brand new name, and, and nobody's the wiser. That's what I think happened. Why isn't even one of the four ever found? Um, there's a big reward. Well, I think the answer's pretty clear. There aren't any photographs, so even if someone is suspected, it's, it's hard to prove they're one of the benders. The, um, there, there are descriptions um, in case. I don't want to discourage any of you if you think you might have a likely suspect, possibly from your family tree. Uh, they are described in many ways in the newspaper stories and in books over the years. Some of the descriptions are more like folklore. There are even photographs and drawings people say might be the benders or one of them. None of these are substantiated in any way and are likely doubtful, but let's look at a couple more descriptions. 
The first description I gave is from Larry Wood's Well Done Murder and Mayhem book. 56-year-old John, his 52-year-old wife, Mary, their 26-year-old son, John, and their 16-year-old daughter, Kate. Originally from Germany, the family had lived a while in France where Kate was born before coming to the United States. They had moved to Kansas from Illinois just 15 months earlier. Now, this is actually pretty specific compared to most of what you read. I couldn't find the source for for these that would listed in the footnote, but I I think it's close to the truth. A couple of things from what I read, I think Kate is older, more likely in her 20s. Plus, this is the only place I could find Mother Bender named Mary. Everywhere else, she is just Mrs. Bender. Later, there are places where you you see the name Elvira, like on Wiki, as I mentioned, for the older Mrs. Bender. Kate, uh, that we we can see from the um, the little ad she did advertising her services as a healer and a, a medium. This description is from uh, Labette County, published in 1901, so 30 years after the murders, but there will be people alive who remember the Benders. About the last of 1870, a family of Hollanders, or Germans, consisting of four persons, a man, his wife, son, and daughter. The man was known as William. Yes, I know everywhere else says John or Johann, but they say William, Bender, the son and daughter known as John and Kate. Little was known of the family generally. They repelled rather than invited communication with their neighbors. Kate traveled over the country county somewhat, giving spiritualistic lectures and like entertainments, but created very little stir or comment. The two young people occasionally went to church and singing school, and the men frequently attended public meetings in the township. This is a newspaper account. The Benders consist of four persons. The old man, who is a stout, burly, uh, on the reward poster, he's sparely built, fellow with shaggy eyebrows, only mention I ever saw of eyebrows. His wife, not particularly different from the average German woman of low degree. The son, who is a stout youth of some 22 years of age, and a daughter, Kate, aged about 20 who seemed to possess complete control over the balance of the family. She was rather good-looking, with fair complexion, light eyes, and yellow hair. Yeah, dark eyes and dark hair on the reward poster. So, um, not to mention the big discrepancies in the descriptions, their appearances are quite ordinary. No distinguishing features mentioned, like scars or, or 
a lost limb or something like that that would be really obvious and hard to change. Um, other than German accents and ages, there's not much that sets them apart. Personally, I tend to believe the reward poster the most, but there's really nothing very helpful here. It seems wrong somehow that their appearances don't betray what monsters they are. For such monsters, their appearances are so ordinary. Given all the circumstances, I really think if they'd been caught, that would have been a miracle. Most of the victims' bodies were claimed by relatives. Those that weren't were given decent burials. I found postings for William York and Mary and, or sorry, George and Marianne Longcore at findagrave.com. William is buried at Mount Hope Cemetery in Independence. He left a wife and three children. He was only 33 when he was murdered. George and little Marianne Longcore's bodies were claimed by his in-laws, the Gilmores. They're buried with his wife and baby's son at the Gilmore Cemetery in Wayside, Kansas. There's an interesting photo from the time that shows the graves. Someone has marked the graves and put names on them. It would be interesting to know who marked up the picture and when. And the writing is old-fashioned cursive and a little hard to read, too. To me, it looks like some of the names, um, I, I can't seem to match them to the victims, the so-called eight canonical victims I thought of. Plus, the photo shows nine people buried there. So very interesting if you want to take a look at Find a Grave. So, listeners, we are finally done with the case of the Bloody Benders. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. Also, if you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders, all one word, dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, that's blueberry without any E's in it, dot net. I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.